This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel, it's Steve. Hope you're well. So if you had told me back when I got started on this whole podcast thing that I was going to be doing a podcast about shoes, I probably would have laughed and said, well, I don't think so. But indeed today, we're gonna be talking about shoes, among other things. My guest today is Anthony Stoker. And with over 25 years experience in the footwear industry, Anthony Stoker takes inspiration from the world of art and music and he works closely with an Italian family-run factory to produce shoes worth cherishing. A collection imbued with captivating elegance and founded on the values of longevity and reverence. Longevity, a quality that will last both physically and emotionally. Reverence to inspire awareness and respect for the craft and the craftspeople and customers as well. I first met Anthony a few months ago when I began preparing to launch my podcast. He was actually in the workshop that I took at the time, but he was operating in a supportive role to the participants, having taken the workshop himself in the past. Now he told me he could relate to the term sensitive rebel. And after I had a look at his website, well, I knew I had to have him on the podcast. Anthony's shoes, as well as his podcast, The View from a Shoe, can both be found at anthonystoker.com. And now, here's my conversation with Anthony. My guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is Anthony Stoker. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. What are you rebelling against? What am I rebelling against? I think I probably wouldn't have come up with this word, but it's the word that's jumped into my mind. And it's not a word I even normally use. It's quite weird that it popped into my mind, but conformity, not in a, when you say rebel, Mm -hmm. That sounds more extreme than my character. <laughs> well, it's funny when I was coming up with the the title and, and that phrase, sensitive rebel, I at first thought rebel seems maybe a little bit of a strong word, but it does not have to involve guns and violence by any means. It's just about being willing to say, you know what? I don't know that this is you know the, the way to go with things. So rebelling against conformity Tell me about that and how that informs uh, your work and, and other areas of your life. I think mainly it's to do with the way we, as a society in general, obviously not everyone, but the way we buy things and the way we consume things. I'm into caring for what I buy and where it's come from, and not just in the in the sense of sustainability, but also just in terms of the type of company that you buy from, whether they've they've got a holistic feel about them, whether they're coming from the, the right place in mind and heart kind of thing, whether they're trying to do the right thing. Not every company can do with the right thing in every aspect of the way that the business runs or the products that they make or whatever they do. But if they've got the serious intention to do things the right way as best they can, to produce the products in the best way possible and treat their people in the best way possible, et cetera, et cetera. Just, it's about doing things with respect, I think. And that to me shows through in looking at your your website, the thoughtfulness and pride that you take in who you choose to work with 
is really evident there. That was one of the things that jumped out at me. That was, there's a very thoughtful and deliberate part of your work and of the shoes that you create. How did that perspective evolve for you? Like, how did you get to that point? I used to work for companies that were uh, more high street retail, mass market, which is great. It is what it is. It does what it does. It's not to say that there's not a place for it, or even if the companies that I worked for, they did things okay and in the right way. But throughout my experience of being in contact with different factories and seeing how different companies might approach things, I just felt there was a there was a better way to do things and there was a less human way of doing things. So there's the companies that where the main focus was on margin and on satisfying shareholders, whereas I think it's really should be about creating a beautiful product that your customers will absolutely love and adore and working with factories that have the same kind of appreciation for product over price so it's it comes from a seeing the various ways that can be done and wanting to choose the the ones that aligned with my values but those values how would you say that those developed and what are the the kind of influences in your life or experiences that have led to that particular set of values that you have? I think within my family, there's a great deal of respect all around. And there's a great deal of appreciation for the things that we buy. And we couldn't just have things at the drop of a hat when we were kids. I think that's the one of the, the main things. I, I always remember this one time when I was probably around about 16 or 17, and I was walking on the street with my best mate and a younger kid lipped off at us. And I was really taken aback that there was a, a lack of respect for someone else for no reason. And it, it really stuck in my mind at the time. And as the fact that I'm saying it now, however many years later, decades later, it, it really stuck in my mind that there could be that lack of respect for no reason. And then it, it wasn't just a respect for your elders kind of thing because you know we all have to respect each other in each direction but yeah I, just, I always remember that moment as being a, a key thing that I thought respect needed to be a big thing in people's lives really. It sounds like it hit you at least on one level as just this really stark contrast to what you had been taught and really seen modeled in your family and maybe a lot of your life experience what were the, the feelings that that evoked for you in that moment when that happened? Just purely surprise, actually, and curiosity as to why. Obviously, I didn't follow it up because the, the kid ran off or whatever. So the, the moment passed, but it stuck with me in my mind as to why that might be the case. Not that I've ever, maybe I would like to go into at some point, studying a more psychological or aspect of life, but I haven't done that so far there's still time yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> so i want to talk a little bit more about your childhood and about the the experiences and lessons and things that you you took from that i'm especially interested in what you took from childhood whether explicit or implied as it relates to the topic of feelings and emotions things that, again, you remember being specifically told to you by family, or just what you saw modeled for you as you were growing up in your home. 
I don't think I, I thought anything consciously at the time. I think all all of this comes from a, a, respect, a retrospective viewpoint. As you're looking back, you start to pick out moments and think, oh, actually, that was a consistent thread. And like I say, there was a, a consistent thread of respect in our house. Hardly ever any arguments went on. We all got on pretty well. You only realise those things at a later date when you look back. You don't stop at the time and think, oh, aren't we getting on really well? You just carry on with life. Especially as a kid, you're not in a philosophical mindset or thinking about the past. You're just, you're in, as a kid, you're in your moment, really. You're enjoying whatever you're doing, whether you're sketching, drawing, going out and playing football or playing on your bike with your mates or you know, whatever it is. You're much more in the moment when you're a kid, I think. So it sounds like it was a thing that was absorbed just from your environment and experiences, more of an implicit thing rather than explicit like lessons or lectures. Like I've talked to some people who, you know, will remember a parent telling them some specific teaching or kind of thing like that. And it sounds like more, it was just what you absorbed and saw through how your family engaged with each other. Um, from memory, I, w- I would definitely say it was more absorbed. There might have been some sentences spoke to me at certain times that I can't remember right now. But my overall feeling as I sit here with, not with you in the same room across the world, is that it was a definitely a sense of absorbing these feelings and these values, I say. And then what about school or peers or things like that? What, again, experiences or um, teachings do you remember as it relates to the topic of feelings and emotion as you were growing up? I don't think I, at the time, ever really thought about my emotions in at the time. I had various groups of friends. So there's people I'd hang out with at school, there's different groups I'd hang out with in, in the evenings, at weekends, etc. P- different people I'd do sports with. So there's lots of different social dynamics, as I guess you'd say now. But you, you know, I wasn't thinking of any of this at the time. I just got stuck into life and playing and being creative and didn't really give it much of a second thought at the time. So being creative, because obviously that's really your thing now with the work that you do with making shoes and all of that. So how did you first get involved in in starting to play with creative things? And and how did that evolve for you as part of your life? So the earliest thing I can remember is maybe in my um, early teens, I think it was, I had a friend that we used to get together and just draw graffiti-esque ideas, art, artwork, etc., etc. But I was never that bothered about going out into the street, onto the walls at midnight or into the early hours of the morning and, and spraying it onto walls. I was happy that just... That wouldn't be very respectful, would it be? <laughs> I guess not in, in hindsight. I was just happy drawing that kind of... Uh, exploring that kind of art and that kind of creativity on paper at home where it was comfortable and get myself a drink. <laughs> so I I guess I quite like the home environment in that sense as well, rather than being too out on the fringe. I guess that's why when I say the conformity at the start, this is where I'm not an extreme rebel. Otherwise, I probably would have gone out onto the, to the walls <laughs> in the early hours of the morning spray painting. Right. Tell me a little bit also, because I know you've talked about this on your website. Tell me a little bit about the elves and the shoemaker. Well, so this comes from about a year ago. One thing I hadn't really told on my website was a bit of background about me. It was focusing very much on the shoes and the inspirations for the shoes, etc., etc. So I started to, with 
a small group of friends that I have a mastermind group with just to delve into the the reason that I might have at some point been inspired to go down the shoe route. And for a long time, I think I'd assumed that even though I got into fashion at high school and then from following the pursuit of wanting to do fashion design that then led into shoe design at college. I assumed that it just came from that 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 moment, that period or whatever. And I do remember early in my teens, I had a pair of yellow ankle boots, like rustic yellow. They really stuck in my mind. I loved them at the time. I kind of thought that it had come from that. And then one day when I was, my mum kept reminding me over the years, not persistently like every week but like every now and again over the years she'd mention the elves in the shoemaker book that i used to really love as a little kid probably like no four or four or five of them my parents would read to me at bedtime and i'd kind of forgotten about it but i thought ha maybe that's where it all started yeah it's, it's a children's book about a shoemaker that's struggling and he's down to his last few pieces of leather and he cuts out the pieces of leather to make the shoes for the next day. But he wakes up the next day and all the shoes have been made for him. And it's all about these elves that appear in the middle of the night and make the shoes for him. And it increases his sales and turns his life around. And it's, yeah, it's a nice kid's book. It seems like the sort of thing that at the time, often as kids, we don't know why we like the things we like or why we find them compelling. But if you look back at it now... And think about that story. Can you see any elements in it that you go, oh, okay, that's probably the part that was speaking to me, or that's the part that made it interesting to me to keep coming back to it? It, it must be a subconscious thing. Um, because I do my own podcast, I've had similar conversations where I've tied these realizations from what people have ended up doing later in life, or even not particularly later in life, just midlife or for as a career or as a hobby in their adult life two aspects of their childhood and it's on the back of realizing that myself there's a certain parallel is the word i'm not sure in the the struggle of creating your own brand and identifying with that maybe that's a you know a subconscious link there going on the style of the shoes in the shoemaker mainly women's i think whether that's a a, a direct connection or not i'm probably grasping at straws a little bit but there's definitely a feeling of connecting that a sense of struggle to do something, overcoming a, for me, it was not a switch in career altogether, but a, a switch in area of career. Because my the, the shoes I, I would design for, or even now to this day for my freelance clients and previous to me doing my own line, was much more comfort oriented, not so high heeled, not evening, not elegant, but you know, still good looking, I would think, but much more mass market and commercially driven so maybe there's a maybe there's a link there i'm not sure coming back to career you had talked about before getting interested in drawing as a kid and then you were saying be, talking about being into fashion in high school how did you get on the path to being involved in designing of shoes and that sort of thing how did that evolve for you so as i say i went to college to do fashion design so the clothing was the the main aspect of the course. But as part of the course, we'd do a bit of jewellery, we'd do a bit of print, we'd do a bit of footwear, even a bit of knitwear. And the footwear aspect just resonated with me. I couldn't really get my head round a knitting machine. I probably didn't have the dexterity of fingers to do jewellery properly. And while the print process intrigued me, the footwear 
it just seemed to make sense. It just fit with my head, my mindset, my thought process, my inspirations, I guess. I'm not sure how many different things, but it just seemed to come fairly naturally. And I understood the concept of drawing shoes a lot easier than other things. And of course, this is the place where everyone wants to make the joke about, well, if the shoe fits. But in all seriousness, what I'm hearing here is, for whatever reason, shoes and the work of designing shoes, something about that compared to other aspects of fashion is something that, again, it felt right. And it sounds like you were also able or willing to listen to and honor that inner sense about this seems like the right thing for me. Yeah, I, I am without a doubt um, a true believer in in going with your feelings. Maybe not in every case, but yeah, I, I very much follow my gut and my heart and my feeling in, in all of that sense when it comes to designing and lots of other aspects in my life as well. But that, that, that's also quite a difficult route to take within design, I think, because the nature of business is that the more money-minded people within a company want to understand uh, a sense of metrics, of numbers, of why do you think that shoe design is going to sell more than that shoe design, blah, blah, blah. There's trends that come through that you follow, and there's lots of quite tenuous links that you thread together to then bring into one product design that makes sense in my head and in my feeling, yet it's very difficult to put into a box to say, okay, we've got that and we've got that, and therefore this will sell reasonably well or really well or whatever. It's a difficult balance. So there, there's really two things here that are poking up my brain. One is you start, you get these, these other folks who are more, again, more numbers oriented, who are challenging you or maybe pushing either other angles or other ideas. How do you hold on to that sense of this is the right thing? How do you hold on to and trust that gut feel of yours in the face of that sort of a pressure and challenge? I think that's one of the reasons why I created my own line, so that I had something that I could do and create that was 100% true to my vision and my beliefs and my values, et cetera, et cetera, and the way I wanted to do it and the factories that I wanted to work with and the, the materials I wanted to use, et cetera, et cetera, and the designs I wanted to implement and the stories that I wanted to tell. And I think when it comes to working with other brands and companies, et cetera, that where you need to balance it, I think you, it's a case of you need to read the room in a sense. You need to understand their perspective. You need to understand what they need from the product which might be a very different thing to what you need from the product. Because for me, it's about you know creating something that looks great, feels great, both for yourself and when you're wearing them out into the world. But for them, they want it to sell, they want to bring the numbers in, they need the turnover, etc. So it's understanding, which I think comes down to a level of empathy, not in an overly feeling sense maybe, but in the sense that you need to understand the perspectives of the other people in the room and what they need beyond creating this space for yourself, and maybe this is how you've done it, but you've got this one space you've created for yourself with your own line where you can do it exactly the way you want to do it. You don't have to really get caught up in compromise. But in these other situations where you're trying to balance the other voice, how do you find a way to balance it with your own feelings without letting it, I'll say, take over or start to snuff out your ideas? Oh, I think over over time you learn 
to let things go. There's certain occasions where, I don't know, you, you, it's just a delicate, not a delicate balance, but a, a balance of knowing where and when you can include your creativity. So in a sense, if you're designing a very commercial plain looking shoe for a very commercial plain brand or high street retail or whatever, you might put your creativity into the lining or into the sole bottom. It doesn't need to be in the area that, that is the, the dominant visual aspect. There's, there's different ways that you can bring your creativity. I'm hearing you holding on to the idea of bringing your creativity, your voice to the work, but being adaptable about where and finding a space to be able to still do it, even if it's not necessarily, again, something overt or wherever it might be, but figuring out where can I have that voice in this work and by doing so, not worry about expressing it in this other component of, of the shoe. Yeah, yeah. It's about just finding your own way of bringing your voice or your flavor of design into something within the boundaries of what the customer needs, what they're, what, what, what they're after. Because if they're not going to buy it, then it's a pointless task. How would you say, as it relates to your gut, your kind of in, intuitive sense, how did you, like, is that something you've always trusted? Is that something you've had to learn to trust? Where, where did that evolve from, do you think? That's something I have never thought about, I don't think. I'm, I'm just you know, listening to your question there and thinking back to what I said earlier in the conversation about when I was a kid, I'd, I would just go with the flow. And I've, I've gone with the flow most of the time. I've gone with the, the feeling of what my heart or what my gut desired in, in terms of the route I've taken and the decisions I've made. It's about what's felt right. Yeah, I don't know where I've learned that particularly i feel like i've always done that and and uh, equally thankfully from my parents that they've, they've never kicked that out of me either they were quite happy for me to take the creative route and go to fashion college and and do shoes whether they secretly thought that might be a, a fringe career or not at the time i don't know i've never been too constrained i don't think well, that's what i'm hearing it sounds like the message you received again whether it was implicit or explicit is that what you're thinking, what your, you know, kind of gut feel or interest is, that's okay. That it was supported instead of being challenged or questioned or someone going, she, you know, shoes, what are you thinking shoes or anything like that? They were just willing to support and empower, in, in a sense, that voice, that inner voice of yours, it sounds. Yeah, they just let me get on with it. And that's what I did. And I, they're always there for me in the background that if I needed. But yeah, I've just left home, went off to college moved to London after that, just gone on from one step to the next with not a great deal of deep thought. I think a lot deeper about things these days, but at the time I just went from one thing to the next. Okay, what should I do now? Where should I go now? Etc. And sometimes that was down to what, you know, the opportunities that were open to me rather than digging out opportunities that maybe were behind closed doors, which in, in, in hindsight, it might be, you might find new things that weren't open to you if you dug a bit deeper and knocked on some doors that were close to you, persisted a bit more with certain things, whereas I would choose the open door. Are there doors that you wish you had at least maybe knocked on, if not necessarily outright knocked down? Not at the time. It's, it's, it's just, it's quite interesting to see how other people's careers develop. And, and not that I'm completely happy with the way that mine went, 
and is going, which is quite interesting from my, my curiosity perspective. When you look at people like Alexander McQueen that took a role in a tailor's in Savile Row and really learnt the craft of, of tailoring and then how that developed from there. It's not to say that everyone who goes to work in a tailor's becomes the new Alexander McQueen. But I, I just find stories about people's backgrounds and how their careers have developed very interesting. It, it sounds like for you that you have found this sort of middle ground of, as you say, going with the flow. But when I'm hearing you say that, it sounds like you mean it in a different way than some of the folks that maybe I've worked with or talked to who, for them, going with the flow is really almost succumbing to the current and just going wherever it takes them. But it sounds like for you, it's more about having your own inner sense of what you want to do or what matters and holding on to that, but working within the confines of the current, right? So maybe more like, like a sailboat where it's like, it's subject to you know, the wind in one sense, but at the same time, you can still steer it where you want to go. And that sounds more like the way that you've navigated. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good analogy, actually, I would say. Even though I've never really understood how a boat with sails manages to go against the wind. But um, yeah, that's a good analogy. I think I've always followed my inner flow rather than the the expected flow. I'm, I'm curious, as far as your process for design and creating shoes, what are the different things that come into play in influencing a design for you. So when we're talking about my own line, I specifically went for inspirations that were long-held inspirations that weren't related to trends or anything short-term. It was my whole thinking with all the ingredients that goes into the shoes is about long-term. So the inspirations, the materials, the quality. So I looked for moments in my life or things that I'd bought in my life that I really cherished because I wanted my shoes to be cherished in the same way. So one of the things that stood out was on a holiday to Hawaii nearly 20 years ago. I was walking along the promenade on Maui, and I can't remember the name of the town right now, but I think it might have been Pali. And I walked into a an art gallery. I'm a sucker for art galleries and art books. And it was an art gallery either owned or showcasing the work of a guy called Vladimir Kush. And I came across a print in the gallery that just kind of really hooked me. It was just like, wow, that is beautiful. It really grabbed my attention because it was a little bit surrealistic, but it, it was of a, of a purse and it's like it had that connection with fashion and beautiful product, but in a surrealist kind of way. And I didn't have any real money at the time. We were doing the holiday on a bit of a budget, but I did have a flexible friend in a credit card so I, I passed that over and said, look, if it works, then I'll buy the painting. If it doesn't, then it's it's not meant to be. That went through, so I bought that print, and I've loved the print ever since, and it's using inspirations like that, things that I've really loved over time, as inspirations for the, d the designs of the shoe. Relatedly, I wanted to ask you about the names for your shoes, because I was when I was looking on your website and looking at the names, I'm I'm curious where they come from. I have a, a thought about this, but I want to hear what you have to say first. <laughs> Half of them named after New Order songs or albums. That was right. And as I was naming the shoes, I was looking for one word names and was inspired by 
a lot of the New Order songs and albums. And I couldn't find enough for the whole collection that really captured the essence of the shoe or the designs behind the shoe and the inspirations behind the shoe. So I, I found my own one-word versions for the other half, for the other four, that in my head sounded like they could be New Order songs, but still resonated for me with the designs of the shoe and the, and the values of the brand. So it's a bit of a bit of a mix. You could do like a quiz that would be which ones are New Order songs and, and which ones are not, right? <laughs> <laughs> or for your next collection, you could maybe use, although I don't know how many are one word titles, um, Joy Division song titles. Let me see if there's <laughs> some of those. <laughs> Tell me about your, you know, as we're on the topic of New Order, which is something that I selfishly kind of wanted to talk about a little bit. Tell me about your discovering of New Order and, and Peter Seville and just your experience of all of that. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I feel a little bit of a fraud in this area because I've, I've got friends that are way more into New Order than I am. And I, I really like New Order a lot, but yeah, my best mate from home, he was the person that got me into New Order back in early 80s, 1983, so Blue Monday time. I feel like I should be introducing my mate Nick to come in and, and talk to you about this bit. But yeah, so... I've you know loved them ever since he introduced them to me and just gradually over the years probably listened to them more over the last 10 years than I did actually at the time. I mean I listened to them a lot when I was hanging out with Nick as a teenager and another mate of I was also called Nick. They were making music as well as listening to it. Yeah. That's where the the connection to New Order comes from. It comes from those guys and over many years have grown uh, a huge appreciation for the actual the graphic design that Peter Saville created for them, and just in, intrigued and found it really curious how the graphic design that he did be, can be as big and as well known as the music itself. It's quite a, an interesting um, combination or collaboration, and, and the, the fact that he was given free reign to do it without any involvement from the band is quite interesting as well, because there's, there's a a great level of trust and respect there between the two. They haven't felt the need to kind of sign off things, etc., etc. So it's, there's lots of quite interesting dynamics that come from New Order and Peter Sovel as, as an inspiration. As a kid, for me, I always resonated more with bands whose album covers felt like they had a thematic consistency to them. Mm. But with New Order, that's not really the case, but I was still really drawn to those album covers. So what do you think? I'm going to ask you as, as a creative, what is it that, that Peter did with those cover designs? Like, why do they work so well? Because I think they really do. And yet they're often very simple. You know, there's an elegance to them, but what is it about them that you would say makes them work? This is probably where you might get a more informed response from my, my friends, but from my personal perspective on what I know and understand, I think what I like about it is the historical artistic references. So he draws on, whether it's Barhouse or other art movements, I, I like that aspect that it, you can see a progression where he would draw inspiration from those art movements in the early days, and then you can see how he would develop his photography process or the various processes that, that he used for the covers but I think the ones that resonate for me and the ones that I've drawn inspiration from are the ones that have that historical connection that's where the 
intrigue and the curiosity comes for me. Um, so the the power corruption and lies album cover, you know, just the story of even how he came about to use it for the album cover. It's a painting by a French artist called Henri Fantin de la Tour. It's called A Basket of Roses, and he'd been walking through the National Gallery in London looking for inspiration, looking for research and ideas, and picked up a postcard on his way out. And I think his wife pointed it out and said, why don't you use that? I have no true knowledge about how much of the story is true, but I, I like the feeling of it, and I've got my own connections with, with the National Gallery in London because I used to visit there quite a lot, and that's where I bumped into Yulia, who's an artist and now a friend of mine, who I asked to paint a painting for me that then went onto the, the box cover for, for my shoeboxes. I like all these little um, connections and parallels that, that tell stories. What New Order album cover or single cover, which one's your favorite? Is it Power, Corruption, and Lies? Yeah, I, I think I'd say Power, Corruption, and Lies. Probably because of, of how it's inspired my shoebox in, in that sense. Yeah, I think that one. I mean, I, I love the simplicity of ceremony as well and movement and those kind of things as well. But I think Power, Corruption, and Lies is probably my favorite. Favorite song? Oh, man. Temptation? Why Temptation? There's some lyrics in it that really resonated for me at a point in time. And again, I, I used the, the song, the, the title of the song for one of my shoes. So there's, again, it's, there's that whole link of not only past, but how it might lead to the future. So about shoes, what would you say are maybe either some of the, the myths or mistaken beliefs or assumptions that people make about shoes or about shoe design? As a shoe designer, you do get a lot of responses that is, you should do a shoe that is also a heel shoe and a flat shoe at the same time. Is a, is a common idea. Look, people like to give you ideas for shoes and they tend to be all very, quite similar. I can't think of a of a time that someone's suggested something that was out of the blue and radical and good at the same time. The other thing that comes up quite a lot is sizing of shoes and just the fact that each brand uses their own different set of foot models and slightly different set of standard measurements, etc. etc. So you do get a lot of people saying, how come I'm a six and a half in one brand and I'm a six in another brand, etc., etc. Yeah, that's that's a common, it's not a myth, it's a, uh, it's a truth, but it's just because of the various different ways that happen within different brands and how shoes develop within the brand rather than a overall standard across the world. Because even though it sounds like we think six or seven or whatever, that sounds, you know, well, it's the same number, right? But there's not some universal, like, shoe template that everyone is using by any means well th there are shoe associations that do have standard measurements for companies to develop from but once it's within those numbers and those that knowledge is taken into the company then it becomes about personal taste so the designer might want an elongated toe which then affects the fit or the they might want a broader toe which might affect the fit and it, so you've got to make adjustments that allow for the aesthetic sometimes. That's where it starts to diverge slightly. So tell me about some of, or maybe one of the, the big challenges that you have faced and had to overcome along the journey of your career and designing shoes. It didn't turn out to be particularly adverse, but I've been made redundant a couple of times from jobs, which 
is a shock in the moment, but I think if you take stock, take a breath, and realize that it's not the end of the world, and you just knuckle down and find something new, then you can crack on. So even though it, I understand that being made redundant can be a moment of serious adversity in a lot of people's lives, it doesn't always need to be. It's just about maybe how, how you approach it. I think the one area that I struggle with maybe is the outer sales aspect. I'm very much into the creativity and, and working with the factories and just producing the product. The Then the selling and the PR and the promotion side of things, that's never been my bag. So it's that's an area that is probably a consistent challenge. What do you think makes it challenging for you? I think I'm just less interested in that side of it. I'm more interested and get more enjoyment from the creativity side of it, designing the shoes and, like I say, working with the factories and that whole behind-the-scenes aspect is much more enjoyable for me than being front of house, if you like. And we've only got a certain amount of time in the day in our lives, so to actually spread yourself to either side of behind-the-scenes and front of house might reduce the overall enjoyment of the whole thing. That said, you need to be able to sell shoes to be able to make shoes. And so what are your kind of thoughts or how do you go about resolving that tension of here's this thing that's an important part of the process, but not a thing that I'm all that interested in that I don't want to have my time and energy distracted into it. So how do you go about resolving that? I think the the best way is to outsource it, to find other people who are better at doing that kind of thing and more, it's more aligned with their strengths. That's the best way that, you know, to deal with it, I think. It's getting the right people to do what they what they love rather than trying to shoehorn, pardon the pun, the, the wrong people into the, the wrong situation. This sounds, in a sense, like another place where the go with the flow theme comes into play. For you recognizing that being so involved in the selling PR piece, that's not a space where you tend to flow naturally. And so it's a, okay, bring others in to do that so you can really focus your attention and energy where the flow is, I'll say, strongest or fastest or yeah. most powerful or yeah. whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that seems to be the wise route to take. Going forward, what are you working on now or what's coming next for you in, in your business, do you think? At the moment, I'm just looking at different ways of getting the name out there or getting my name out there. I'm intrigued by different routes that might not be the normal route. You know, the, the route from producer or designer to consumers is changing a hell of a lot at the moment and it has been for the last maybe 10 years or whatever but i think there's there's even more interesting ways to to bridge that gap so i'm spending time at the moment thinking and just developing ideas of how i can reach the end consumer but in in different ways than the obvious sounds interesting But I think you're right that the the process of buying things and of products and, and customers being connected is changing all the time. And certainly the last year has, I think, probably nudged that forward yeah, in, in a strong result. way. So and it's going to be very, go ahead. Yeah, and no, also I think the main route is busy. It's loud, it's noisy. There's a lot of people on social media trying to grab your attention in the same way that there was probably lots of people approaching retail outlets to try and get your product into the retail outlets. So the obvious route is noisy and it's difficult to 
stand out from the crowd in a sense. So I think if you take a different route that maybe people haven't thought about, then it would stand out more and make make a bigger impact. I know you are, as we've touched on briefly, really selective in who you choose to work with in the production and creation of your shoes. Tell me how you've developed those connections and why you've chosen the people that you've chosen, maybe. So my career, previous to me doing my online career, was more associated with factories in the Far East and connections there. So me wanting to do things closer to home were a bit of a starting from scratch in a sense. I had the, the technical knowledge and I knew the processes and had huge amounts of experience, but I didn't have the contacts in Europe in the same way that I had elsewhere. But I was very conscious of the fact that I wanted to create, to produce the shoes closer to home, just to minimise on air travel, on impact of the on the land, etc., etc., in a, any smallest way possible. So it was important for me to find a factory that had as many components as possible to come from very close to the factory. So not only was the shoes being made closer to where I am, but all the components were very close, closely sourced to the factory. So there wasn't a lot of uh, geographical footprint. It was kept to a minimum as much as possible. So all the components in the shoes are all come from within Italy, except for the, the crystals on one of the styles. So most of the materials and components come from even within the, the region within Italy, not even just with the, inside the country. So it's all quite closely knit. So I was looking for a factory that had that kind of connection in the area, which is reasonably common in Italy because it's quite a family-oriented type businesses a lot of the time. But I was looking for a, a factory that had a very family feeling to it that was willing to do small orders because I was starting from scratch, which brings it a different set of challenges, and was willing to see things in the long term, had a had a, a long-term view of the relationship that we could build between us rather than how many pairs am I going to make for you. I, I, I wanted someone who was going to put product before numbers and really loved the essence of, of shoemaking and the craftsmanship and was proud to make shoes. They didn't see it as just... A means to make money. Not just as a transaction. Yeah. They had a genuine feeling and love for shoes and shoemaking and the whole process. How do you feel that difference affects or benefits the end product? I hope that comes through with not just the design, but when you hold the shoes in your hand, you can feel that level of love and care that's gone into the creation of it. And you can really get that sense from the way it's packaged and the way it's the way the whole product is put together is beautifully thought out, well made by great people in, in Italy. And, you know, that's why I added the aspect of the silk scarf to the product. So they're all wrapped up in a silk scarf to enhance that feeling of something that's been cherished and cared for. So this all relates to the, the kind of sense of, I'll use the word aesthetic, I guess, that really flows through like if anyone looks at your website when i was looking at it the other day i was just compelled really by by just the visual and the feel of it and was just looking around it and there's such this kind of strong sense of aesthetic that goes through all of it and clearly that's a very important part of your work 
How does one develop that? I'm, I'm curious um, what you can share about your own awareness around aesthetic and how you develop it. I think it's down to something, just something that you do consistently. So if I was to look at, and I have done some of my drawings from 20 years ago, they're not in the same aesthetic desirability <laughs> that I would describe they are now. So I think it's just through persistent drawing and sketching and evaluating and drawing on what in other people's products or artwork. You, you develop a sense of aesthetic from what you consume through your eyes anyway, and you, you start to build up your own sense of a view, your own sense of aesthetic. And that's great that you like what you saw on my website, but it might not be to everyone's, might not be everyone's cup of tea. It's, yeah. But it does have a consistent feel to it. Like regardless of what one, mm. I, at least I think, whether what one went and said, okay, this speaks to me or not, it has a very consistent feel. And what I think I'm hearing from you is that the development of an aesthetic is something about, it's about iteration and about refinement over time. Yeah, and I think when it comes to the website and the sh shoes that I've designed and created, it's very focused with the ingredients that I set out with at the start. I think it's about keeping those in mind, but also you've probably got them in mind anyway. If that's where you're truly coming from, if that's, you know, what you're doing from your heart and from your gut and you're following your own inner flow of ideas and, and creativity, then it will naturally come from a similar place because it is coming from the same place inside you. It's not, you're not just taking someone else's brief and answering someone else's situation. It's because if I was to do that, then there'd be a difference, a distinct difference and probably wouldn't sit as well on the website or within the brand, but it's just about being consistent to the elements that you've set out at the start, I think, and just keep that in mind. It sounds like you've really learned or just consistently learned to one, listen to and honor that internal voice of yours. This is that again, going with the flow and it's real obvious. Like I think, um, that if I were to see in two different situations, two women wearing your shoes without knowing that they were, you know, I would see those two shoes and go, Oh, those look like they came from the same person, the same designer or the same company, because they all have a very similar feel. Yeah. I think but, over time you, you build up a, a handwriting whether it's designing shoes or, or clothes or writing a book, or if you read a particular author, you, you get to know and feel their rhythm in reading their writing. That's definitely, I think you can see the voice maybe is the, the word that, that people often yeah. use for that or whatever it is, but it very clearly shows. Now, I'm going to ask you, and this may be a, a, a tough call, but if you were to describe or just, you know, to describe your shoes using one word, what would it be? Reverence. Reverence for what? For everything. For for friendships, for craftsmanship, for life, for the things that we do, for, for, for the days that we live at, for yeah, just appreciating what we what we have. And indeed, one of your shoes is actually named Reverence. Mm. And it's one of the ones that's not a New Order song, yeah. by the way. <laughs> Given away the quiz answers now. 
I, only one of them. I just, that's a little, that's a little bonus. So Anthony, where would be the best place for people to one, learn more about you, but two, then the best way for them to get in contact with you? I would say the best way is through the website, which is anthonystoker.com. There's a, there's a link there to get in contact from, can sign up on the newsletter. Yeah. And there's links through to my Instagram page, et cetera, et cetera. So that's probably the best focal point. I'll put in a, a plug here for taking some time to to explore Anthony's website. And I'm this will sound like I'm just saying this to be nice because he's on my show, but I'm I'm not at all because his website, the essence section of his website is is amazing. Like I spent so much time just exploring it. And I think it really captures a lot about him and who he is. And it's just very interesting. And it's very like, again, it has such this great aesthetic and feel to it. It just, it was like one of those things you look at and you're like, this is just cool. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It reminded me of spending time as a kid, like with albums, right? Back when we had actual vinyl and like going through looking at the album and the sleeve and all that, it has that same sort of very powerful feel to it. And just really interesting whether or not you're you know, curious about the product. And I'm not one to um, be buying women's high-heeled shoes. And at the same time, I found the website fascinating and, and just a really interesting thing to explore. That's great to hear. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for taking the time to come on the show and talk with me today. My um, pleasure. A lot of fun. And yeah, so thanks again. All right. Take care. Thanks very much. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.